Romans 6. So Paul has moved here through the book from the gospel to sin and judgment to God as both judge and the justifier to our faith in the work of Christ, the unchanging blessings of justification. And now he's going to move on to our identity, to our sanctification, to our new life in Jesus Christ here. And certainly uh, the book itself is, there are many things that are theological and systematic. Uh, A lot of guys point out, and I think this is helpful, that Paul talks about justification, sanctification, and glorification. Justification is God's removal of the penalty of sin. Sanctification is God's removal of the power of sin. And glorification is God's removal of the presence of sin. So when we are justified, the penalty for our sin, our punishment, is taken away from us. But we still have sin natures in our bodies. But the power of that sin nature is broken in sanctification, and that work becomes real, and it's what we'll begin to look at tonight. And then one day, we're going to be glorified, and when that happens, the very presence of sin in us and in the world that we live in is going to be gone. And there will be total harmony in our life, body, mind, and spirit, in the world we live in, in the society that we live in, and that's what we think of as heaven. So, This is kind of in process here, and Paul is certainly laying these things out doctrinally, but I believe he's also moving through what would be the typical process of a person's Christian life and experience, which is a recognition of sin, a recognition of God's work, the Christ, the work of Christ on the cross in salvation, faith being put in that, then that faith having to work out, okay, what does it mean to still have a sin nature and struggle with those things, which we'll see here and into chapter 7, and then an understanding of the Spirit's work in our life to bring us a certain level of victory in this life over sin in the flesh. So there's, there's a real, uh, just I think, and why people have found this book so helpful through the years, a real kind of flow of what it means to have spiritual life and kind of different important basises in the middle of all those, those places. And in a very similar way, when you're given human life, when we're born into this world, we don't quite understand the whole process, just like when we have a new spiritual birth. We don't quite understand all the phases of it. But as you mature, you can look back and understand better. You understand better now what it was when you were a baby and what was happening to you and what your parents had to go through, and right, there's, there's a process where we become more aware of what our life actually entails. And the same thing can really happen with us spiritually, where we can look and say, oh, okay, like, I get what was happening here. I understand why I had this struggle now. I understand why I thought this way. I understand what needed to happen here, where I needed to grow. As we mature in the Lord, there's the same type of understanding and recognition that happens in our lives. And as Paul comes here, he's going to talk to these believers as if they've gone through what he's already kind of shared. They're saved, they're justified, but there is now a new relation to the new life they have and still sin, and how that all kind of works together. 
and he's going to speak to them about what that looks like in really kind of three three kind of pictures. So we're not going to be able to cover all of this tonight, but in chapter 6, this is just as you're thinking or reading ahead, 1 through 14, we see him talking the first, a picture of baptism and life. In 6, 15 through 23, we see it in terms of slavery and a master. And in 7, 1 through 6, we see it in terms of a marriage covenant. The whole point kind of being this, if we're baptized into Christ and start a new life, then how can we live the old life? If we have received a new master, how do we still serve the old master? And if we've stepped out of an old covenant into a new covenant, then why will we still be bound to the old covenant? And in all these pictures, he's kind of showing what Christ has done for us and how it's unreasonable to assume that Christ can do that and there's not the correct life and response there, which looks like different kind of levels or ways sanctification works out in our lives. So that said, as kind of just an overview, let's get in to the chapter here. Chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Obviously, building all five. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. Or your Bible might say, God forbid. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? So Paul has just established, particularly in verse 20, where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. Grace overflowed. And he's established this message here of grace and our freedom from the law. And Paul preached the grace of God so powerfully that he, and pointedly and clearly, that he constantly had criticism that he was basically just giving people license. So even earlier in the book, in 3.8, he brought up the question, and why not say, let us do evil that good may come, as we are slanderously reported, and as some affirm that we say. Paul said, like, I know people say that I say this. I know people say this is my message. And he's, he's going to bring that up here because he knows as he's sharing these things, as people read this letter, this is what they're going to be thinking. Some people are going to be saying, well, then, like, okay, if, if when we sin, grace abounds, then why don't we just keep sin, sinning? Because grace will just abound more and more and more, and God will just be more and more glorified. He knows that's going to be on people's minds. That was never his true message. Of course, even in 2.7, he said, those by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality. That was what his exhortation was. But Paul knew that people were going to say basically the same thing of verse 1. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Okay, if you say that's what happens when we sin, should we just continue that way? And I think he had that discussion probably a number of times. He anticipates the people in Rome having to have the same discussion, and he's going to cover this. He knows it's going to be a process in the Christian life. And sadly, this is not something that is only in their day and age. It is something that still happens today. They have a big word for it, antinomianism, which just means kind of like lawlessness. Basically, the word is itself a rebellion against language because nobody uses it. So, the, the, the reality here is there's always going to be a segment of people that are going to use this excuse to continue in one form of sin or another. 
And you wish it would kind of be this thing that was false, but people just don't speak this clearly, typically, about what they actually think in their hearts or how they actually plan to live. And we always have to be careful about somebody arguing for a particular license or a freedom in sin. Somebody said arguing for a license to sin is always the devil's logic. So we should be careful when we find it there. And people don't say it like that, but they speak in terms of, they, they always bring a contrast between grace. You know, we kind of like to lean towards God's grace. These people lean towards the law more. We like to lean towards God's love. These people lean towards legalism. There's no space for sanctification or holiness or Christian maturity or even a rebuke and a total repudiation of sin and the sin nature. You can only have one side of the conversation. And what's happening is, it's just basically, God is so loving, he doesn't care about anybody's sin at all. You could just, he's, he has so much grace, you could just keep going, and really it doesn't matter. Now, that, again, they might not say it that clearly, but that's the truth of it. Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his book Temptation says, he, speaking of Satan, takes the word of God's grace in his hands and whispers to us, God is a God of grace. He will not take our sins so seriously. So he awakens in us the longing to sin against God's grace and assign forgiveness to ourselves even before we sin. This has always been around. And it's important to note this was a real problem, I think, in the churches that even Paul established. We know in Corinth, there was heterosexual sin and homosexual sin going on. Very obvious people with prostitutes, a guy in sexual sin with a stepmother. There was drunkenness going on in the church. There was division going on in the church. And apparently they felt like it was cool to allow some of these things just to roll. And Paul had to rebuke and correct them and talk about church discipline in the church. Jude, when he's writing said he wanted to write about the common faith to believers, but instead he said he had to write about something else because certain men, Jude only has one chapter, this is Jude verse 4, certain men have crept in unnoticed who long ago were marked out for this condemnation. Ungodly men, here's what they do, who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. It was happening in that day. And Timothy, when Paul writes to Timothy, 2 Timothy, he says there's going to be perilous times that will come in the last days. And men are going to have a form of godliness, but deny the power thereof. They might have a godly doctrinal statement. They might have nice Christian words. But they begin to, the central thing is they begin to deny the power in the gospel to actually change lives. They deny that it has a supernatural element that makes people a new creation, that, that allows them to no longer live as slaves to sin. And the message isn't just, we can live in our sin and God's grace will abound. So again, how do we understand the balance of these things? Right? We're justified. The penalty of our sin is removed. That is true. Remember, we talked about justification isn't the whole of salvation. It's the beginning. 
Sanctification, new life in Christ, is just as real and powerful as justification is. New birth is just a, as much a part of salvation, new life in Jesus, as the forgiveness of our penalty of sin is. They're, they're both a part of the same thing. You don't get salvation without both, just like you don't get it without the hope of glorification in the end. All of those things are working together. Christ's work to justify us isn't more real than his work to sanctify us. So the question just simply becomes, look at the end of verse, or, uh, yeah, the end of verse 2 there. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? That's, that's the question. Paul says, okay, well, if you died to sin, how can you continue to live in it then? Notice living in it is different than committing a sin. Everybody's going to commit a sin. Again, nobody's perfect here. That's not what he's saying. But he's saying, how can we who, who died to this thing now live it still as if it's our lives? Again, he would say in Timothy, let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. If you call yourself a Christian, then you're naming the name of Christ and you should depart from iniquity. But we know there's a whole banner of what we say is Christendom and a whole lot of people who would claim to be Christians or would speak the name of Christ that can basically justify any type of horrible act under that name that has nothing to do with the actual life of Jesus Christ himself. So for you and I, uh, I think most of us here, we understand uh, that there's a difference there. We have to be aware of those in the world who would play upon God's grace, willingly sinning against it, and make it an excuse for their sin. Uh, Paul knew what was going to happen there. It's still happening in our day and age. It is going to be a big part of the last days. This is something that's going, this, that's going to be there that we're going to run into. Certainly, if you're being tempted that way, this should help open your eyes tonight. So what he says this, and I think this now becomes an explanation because a person can say, okay, well, how did I die to sin? What does that mean then? What does that look like for me? And what Paul's going to do is go back to their baptism experience. They're believers. They were baptized. Paul kind of takes that for granted here, and he's going to remind them about what they did and what that meant when they were baptized. So verse 3 says this, Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should walk in newness of life. So Paul, as he begins to discuss the practical aspects here of salvation and sin, he goes to their obedience in baptism. Every believer who gets baptized gives an assent. They, they acknowledge, in essence, God's sentence on their sin. So the picture is, he says, when we're baptized, we're baptized into Christ's death. We're buried with him. We step into the water. The picture is the old me goes down under the water, and when I'm under the water, I am, in essence, buried. 
and I am considered dead with Christ. Jesus Christ, when he died, took all the old Mike on him and his sins and paid for them there on the cross. But Jesus didn't stay in the tomb. He rose and emerged with new life. And as a believer comes out of the water, what they're publicly saying to the world is, what God has done in me spiritually in paying for the penalty for the old me and my sins and giving me new life in my heart spiritually, I am now declaring publicly. So, so the, the mic that comes out of the water is no longer living like the mic who went into the water lived. The life that he now lives is the life that Christ has given. It's not about me anymore. The old me's dead, and the new me walks in a newness of life, just like Jesus walked in a newness of life. And he wants these believers here to remember, okay, was your death the sin real? You, you died the sin. Was it, was it real that Christ paid for your sin? Was it real that you were buried with him? Was it real that the old you and that sin life was paid for in Christ? Well, then, so must our life with Christ be real. Christ rose from the dead. That, that outward picture of an inward work you declared once is still true. So how can a person who died to sin live their old life again? Isn't isn't Christ in you, what he did in your life, real? Isn't there a power there still? So the power in Christ's resurrection life should make us also, notice he says, walk in newness of life. Even so, we should do that. that he was our example. In, in taking our sin, there was reality. And now, in the giving of life, beyond that, there is reality. The resurrected life, there's a very interesting word there for life in Jesus Christ. It's not, just, it's not just his resurrected body it's talking about. It's literally a quality of life. The resurrected body of, of Jesus Christ is a part of it. Eternal life is duration. There's a part of it. But really, it's the quality of life that he's speaking of here. Because truly we believe everyone lives forever. Duration goes both ways. You live forever in heaven or you live forever in hell. And I'm resurrected to eternal life with him or I'm resurrected to eternal life apart from him. The difference is the quality of life. And what God gives, the life that I'm given, is a life that I did not possess before Jesus Christ did this work in me. Jesus Christ was the first to rise, the Bible says, out from among the dead. Other people rose from the dead. Lazarus rose from the dead, but he died again. Jesus Christ rose from among the dead, resurrected body, new life, never to return again. He walked around and talked with people. He ascended back up into heaven. He's alive there. He's returning again. He's going to set up his rule and reign on earth for a thousand years. 
He's going to wrap everything up and hand it to his father, and there's going to be a new heavens and new earth, and he's going to share his throne for the rest of eternity. He's alive, and he's never going to die. And the quality of the life he possesses, the Bible calls him the first fruits. So when they had that first fruits ceremony, the Jew would come and he'd bring the beginning harvest that they had the best of it, and they'd wave it before the Lord, and there was a picture of, it's just the beginning of a whole bunch more that are coming. So when Jesus rose from the dead, never to return again, the first resurrected body, his, and ascended back into heaven, he was the first. He was the first of a whole bunch more coming. He was the forerunner for us. And that life, that quality of life, is something that he gives to his followers. There's a newness of life. It has nothing to do anymore with what we just talked about, the old Adam and what comes down from him. It has to do with the new Adam, the life-giving spirit of Christ, and what comes from him. And if I'm truly born again, something supernatural has happened in my life. And he's given me a new type of life. And I am called to walk in that new type of life. And you see... Paul's emphasis on these things continues, as he says in 5, For we've been united together in the likeness of his death. Certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing that this our old man was crucified with him, and the body of sin done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. He says, look, you, the, you were connected with Jesus Christ, and something real has happened, but it wasn't just that your sins were paid for. It was that your sins were paid for, and then you received new life. Because Jesus didn't just die and stay dead. He died and rose again. And you remain connected with Jesus. You're united with him. And your old man now is crucified. And it's, you know, again, it's hard for us to sometimes, particularly as a young believer, trying to figure out what does that mean? Well, for Paul, I think he gives us a good picture of these things, his own description, Galatians 2.20, Paul would say, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Here's, here's what Paul says. Here's what this new kind of life looked like for him. In his old life, he hated Christians. <laughs> he was zealously active in breaking up the church, giving his assent to people being stoned and killed and murdered. He was a pretty violent dude. And then he meets Jesus Christ, and he receives new life, and the old him is crucified. And he says, now... Christ lives in me. And what that meant for him is there were things in him that were never there before. Like, number one, love for Jesus, who he did not love. Like, number two, love for the church, who's willing to suffer incredibly for the people of God, who he did not love before. Love for the scriptures in a new way. New spiritual gifts that he never had before. What, what it was is there was things in Paul's life now that he had no explanation outside of 
an incredible supernatural meeting with Jesus Christ. That, that is what we believe happens to every single believer in salvation. It isn't just you get your sins paid for. You receive new life in Jesus Christ, and you walk in the newness of that life. So the old me is crucified, and I might not have any explanation for it, but I have Christ living in me because me did not live that way before. <laughs> me didn't want to read the Bible. Me didn't want to pray. Me didn't want to go to church. Right? We know this. There's a, there's, you should have an experience of this. And some people, their experiences, they did all the religious things until one day they figured out they weren't even truly born again. You got crazy stories about people like John and Charles Wesley who did more religious things than most religious people, even tried to be missionaries, and nothing worked until they finally realized that they weren't actually born again. They didn't have new life. And Jesus Christ eventually saved them, and then everything changed. Jesus himself says the new birth is like a mystery. The Spirit of God works. You can't see how it all happens, but you see its effects. And Paul said, what, what is my explanation? I mean, I think many of us can say the same thing. If, if I look at people who sat in the same Bible studies as me, came to the same church, were in the same scenarios, and who aren't walking with Jesus, the only, the only answer I can say is that I am and they're not is, I'm born again. Why do I have spiritual feelings at all? Because Christ lives in me. And there's no other answer outside of that for any of us. And what Paul is saying here is he's pointing out to these people, how, how can I say that I can just go and sin so that grace can abound when I'm already dead to sin and I have new life in me and the new life in me is nothing like my old life. So if I just going back to my old life, there's a problem. There's a problem. I've been united with Jesus. There's, there's a new starting place now. This death was a starting place for all of Adam's cursed race. Now I have new life and a new manner of living because of it. I walk in that newness of life. And I'm, notice he says in 5, I've been united. Your Bible might say planted together with Christ. It's actually a very interesting word there in the Greek. It's the only time it's used. It has the idea of growing together, which is why they use planted there. Uh, one author just said, if, if we got very literal, it would be in life with Jesus. It's kind of cool. Jesus is going to make sure that if we share in his death, we share in his life. This is a declaration. This is something that is true. If I'm born again, then I have both. I don't just have one or the other. And certainly, there's going to be levels of that life which Paul's going to talk about, because he's going to talk about that life being in conflict. Just like I can say, a baby that's born has true life. And that life has all types of characteristics but it's on a certain level of maturity, and it's going to grow more mature. A person who is spiritually alive has new life in Jesus Christ, and that life is Christ in them. 
It's Jesus' thoughts, Jesus' desires, the Spirit's work in us, things that we wouldn't have any explanation for outside of a supernatural event. And it should be natural for us to be in life with Jesus. Or maybe we just say what Jesus said, abide with him. I, I should, as a Christian, have those things all day long. And I think we take it for granted. You have a thought, I should pray for this person. I should serve a church. Or you know what, I've been kind of stagnant. I grew for a while and I see that I'm not growing now. Or Lord, I want, I want this person to be saved. Help me to, all of those things, where do they come from? They don't come from your old man, that's for sure. They come from Christ in you. They're the work of his spirit. Why, why do we care about his word at all? Why do we come to church? Why would we want to worship him? Where do any of those things come from? Well, they come from being in life with him. Is it mysterious? Is it a miracle? Of course it is. But Paul's point is simply, you can't have one without the other. You guys all know this. When you were baptized, the old you was buried and died with Jesus. The new you comes out, and just like Jesus walked in newness of life, you also walk in a newness of life. You've been united. We, all believers, have been. This is past tense. All through here, there's past tense, sure tenses. You have been united together in the likeness of his death. Certainly, we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, not just the body. That's a part of it, but his resurrection life. Knowing this, we know this, that our old man was crucified with him. It was put to death. That's a fact. So that we should no longer be slaves of sin. He wants us to come around to the reality that the old man, the sinful nature that Adam gave us, apart from the life in Jesus Christ, right? Remember our family trees? Adam was the head, and all he passed down to us was sinful life. We have messed up physical bodies, messed up emotions, spiritually dead to God. All I had was that. That's my old man. And my old man worked out in all different types of ways. And we all know what our old mans are like. Or old women's. Right? Like you, you all know what those things are. Most of us know what we would be outside of Jesus. And he's saying that old man... That was crucified with Jesus Christ. It was done away with. The, the word there in 6 is um, that the body might be, your Bible might say, done away with, uh, or annulled might be what your Bible, your Bible says. It's made inoperative, maybe even put out of business. That's kind of the picture there. Our old man is now powerless, where before we were powerless to it. People in the world can't be anything other than people in the world. Sometimes we can get very angry at unsaved people. Even in the book of Corinthians, when Paul's talking about church discipline, he's saying, we don't judge people who are out in the world. He says, because those people have no ability to live for Jesus. They don't have the spirit of God in them. He said, the, the person who claims to be a Christian, that's a person who should show new life and there is judgment for that person if they claim christ because those who claim the name of christ should depart from iniquity but if a person doesn't have the spirit of god 
they're a slave to their Adamic nature. They have no hope. They can't change that. It has to be the Lord who changes that. So in Adam, we were powerless to be anything other than sinners. And people can, right, they have a certain level of self-discipline. But the reality is they're still sinners. They don't give God his due. We are, Paul, Paul, Paul already kind of set that whole stage. Everybody's still sinful in their thoughts, sinful in their actions, living selfish lives. Even if they're better than some others, they're still sinners. There's nobody just before him in the end. And the reality is he's just saying, we were slaves to that before, but now that power is broken. Uh, in a similar way, the Israelites and the Red Sea, it was a picture of that. The Israelites were enslaved to Egypt. They had no ability whatsoever to escape the power of Egypt over them. We have the picture of the Passover lamb given, them being covered, kept from judgment, them then leaving, heading to the Red Sea. And at the Red Sea, Pharaoh and his army come. We know the story. The waters come in, wash in kill all Pharaoh and his army. Now the power of Egypt to keep them in bondage is broken. Yeah, they could go back if they wanted, but that was their fault. The power to enslave them was no longer there. And what Paul is saying here is, your old man, even if it's still the presence of sin in your life, the power of sin has been broken because of the new life you have in Jesus Christ. This is a fact. It is something that has been accomplished already. Sure, the flesh and the spirit, they're still at odds with one another. But the flesh doesn't have dominion, power now over you because of what Christ has done. So, verse 7, he expands on this again. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once and for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. The idea here again, Paul just expands on what he said. At the cross, Jesus made his own relationship to sin the believer's relation to sin. He took our place. He died to sin so that the old man could be crucified with Christ. That I wouldn't have to live under the power of sin in my life. That I could be freed from that. That Paul didn't have to. And so that I could also, look at verse 8, also live with him. He didn't just die so that I could live in sin. He died so that I could live in him, with him, abiding in him. And how is it possible then for me to live in sin and to live to Christ? The whole point is, it's not. It's not. He's stating these facts clearly. He's making the point that Christ died. Notice again, verse 10, verse 10. Christ died to sin, not just for sin. He already covered that. But here, he also died to sin. As we saw earlier chapters, Christ died for sin to, to pay for all the penalty of it. But he also died 
to sin, to break the power of it, to make his relation to sin our own, so that we're dead to living as those under the power of sin. It's not just speaking about sin in terms of forgiveness, but as a ruling factor in our lives. Christ, Christ didn't die to pay for our sins and then have believers just live lives totally controlled by sin and not controlled by his spirit. That's not what he did. So Paul is stating these things clearly, and it is one of the ways that we know we know him is if I recognize this life in me. And I might not even be able to say where it came from or how it all happened. It could be a mystery. But it's not a mystery whether you have it or not. And 1 John chapter 2, John would say the same thing, verses 3 through 6. He says, now by this we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. He who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. Does Christ live in me? Well, then that life should look like Christ. Like I'm walking with him. Am I perfect all the time? No, but who do I live to? Again, you, we, can, we can take any moment in any individual's life and it won't look good, right? If we just, just smashed up a couple cuts from all of us, it could all look real bad. But if I take a person's life, if I just take John the Baptist when he was depressed in prison, and, and I measure his whole life by that one moment, does it look like he lived to God? But no, do I, do I take his life? Who did John live to? And where did he get that life from? Very clearly, the Spirit of God. That's what the Bible says. How could that have been worked in him at all when we know what he would be outside of God? Well, we, maybe we don't. He would be a crazy person outside of God, that's for sure. But the reality here is, if there's reality in my death to sin and my justification then there will be reality in my life with God and my sanctification. They're the same thing. God is working them together. Am I going to be perfect? No, certainly not. Should there be progress? Yes, there should. Should that life continue to grow, continue to be sanctified? Absolutely. Should we be maturing? Absolutely. Just like a human is born and that life matures. And if there's not progress, we realize there's a problem. Something has happened. There's an issue. It's the same thing in our spiritual life. So, Paul is built to verse 11. Likewise, in similar manner, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Here's the whole thing. I then reckon myself consider myself dead to sin. I don't consider, notice he doesn't say reckon sin dead. He says reckon yourselves dead to sin. Again, I am not, we might say in, in our more modern language, I'm not identifying myself with my old nature. 
The old me is dead. I am now identifying myself. I reckon the old me dead, and I identify myself with my new life in Jesus Christ. The new birth. What comes from him? I know what comes from me. I no longer see myself through that lens. And everybody has to do this. Every Christian has to do this on a daily basis. Paul had to do this. He was a guy who had a history that was not good to look at. And I think it was a joy for him to say when he gets to eight, there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. So it would be easy for him to be condemned. But that wasn't who he identified himself with. Not with his sinful old nature. He reckoned himself dead to those things. The big difference between the two is Paul is setting out facts for our faith. This isn't about my feeling again. This is true, what Jesus did on my behalf. It might not be my constant emotional experience, but that doesn't make it untrue. We can't allow our emotions to become idols where I only believe what God did and said when I feel it. It's true because he did it and he said it, and he's God. And if it can't be true that way, then he's not God. He has the authority in these things. So we all have two constant choices. Every single day I can wake up and I can feel my sinful nature and I can look at that and reckon myself that. Or I can wake up, I can feel my sinful nature and I can feel my life in Jesus Christ. It's like, that's not right. Seek me and I can reckon myself that what Christ has done I can look at him and say that's where my sinful nature is and I can identify with that or I can look at sin and I can identify with that and say that's who I really am but we all have to not embrace our old life of sin but embrace our new identity in Jesus Christ the new man what he's given us. Again, this is a challenge. Um, there, there are all types of people now that are identifying as all different types of ways. Right? People are identifying with their sin. They want to be a gay Christian. People are identifying as ex-evangelicals. People are identifying as, you know, seekers or whatever. There's people who are identifying as all different types of things. The son or daughter of God has one identification. The old me's dead in Jesus. And the new me has the life of Jesus. That's how I know I'm his son or his daughter. That's what I identify as. And nothing else. And anything else that tries to get in there causes a problem. Because I see myself the way he sees me. Because that's the truest way to see myself anyway. Because he's perfect. He's never wrong. And the minute I identify with anything else, I begin to identify with my old man who's supposed to be crucified, who's supposed to be dead in Jesus Christ, not the life that I'm living or connected to. There's a choice in that. Again, for, for all that we knock the disciples, and there are some things to knock them for. They're not perfect individuals. But I think in a lot of ways, they don't get enough credit for that first step that they took to leave behind their nets and their boats 
and in many ways what they knew would be their lives, their cultures, and follow Jesus. They, made a, they still sinned along the way, but they were identified with him. This, this is where we're going. There is, there is a, a, a direction of their life that this is who I am. I'm his follower. And he worked through the rest along the way. Got into where he wanted to be. Their life matured in him. Just like the rest of us. But we are called to set our mind on things above, not on things of the earth. For you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. That's, that's the reality. That's a declaration. It's not a question. It's a fact. And if it's true in our lives, that's where we need to connect ourselves. And I, the devil wants to lie and tell people, it's very sad, that you can only be yourself or you only be free or you can only be who you are if you identify in these other ways. Not just the homosexual thing, but in all the different things that people are connected to, in their image, in their careers, in their prestige, and whatever else they're going to, really that's their identity. Because if you touch that thing, they get real touchy about it. That's usually how you can tell. He says, that's not who we are. Most of that stuff, that's all connected to your old man, to the person who had to die, that Jesus had to die for. You, you need to make the decision to be connected with me and the life that I live. You're planted with me. You've received my life. It's a new type of life. You did not have this life before. And there was no access to it through your own power. But you've received it supernaturally. And the life that you now live, you live in the flesh. You live by faith in the Son of God who loved you and gave himself for you. It's Christ in you. Your old man's crucified. And I now reckon myself dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's what Paul says to them. You're never going to be sanctified if you don't do that. There's always going to be something to lead you astray, something else that you'll essentially identify with, even if Jesus is kind of peripheral. That's what people want to do. They, they don't want to kick Jesus to the curb. They just want to kind of like keep him around semi-acknowledge him. But they're not truly being identified with his life. Paul says, we need to reckon ourselves dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore, he adds a little exhortation here, do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies, that you should obey it in its lusts, and do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness. Your Bible might say weapons there of unrighteousness to sin. But present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not have dominion over you. For you are not under the law, but under grace. Here's a picture here of kings and subjects, dominion, reigning, service in war. The, the uh, exhortation he gives there is to... Don't let sin then reign. If sin doesn't have power in your life, if you're not forced 
to have it reign over you, do not allow it to reign. And we allow it to reign by presenting our bodies, not our resurrected ones. We don't have those yet. If you think you do, talk to us afterwards. You don't have that yet. You'll have a heavenly body one day, strong, powerful, immortal, heavenly. Then, then you'll be good. We don't have those yet. We present our present bodies to him as opposed to sin. So the, the desires, the life in you, the old you wants to use your body in sinful ways. And instead, I'm supposed to present it to Jesus, just like the disciples just followed him and they literally presented their bodies. Okay, tell us what to do. They weren't always happy about it, I'm sure. Break that up and start giving it to the people. That didn't seem like a good idea. Go down there and get a donkey from a guy. That probably seemed kind of strange, right? He asked them to do tons of stuff. I'm sure a lot of it seemed a little weird at times. But they were presented to him. Okay, these instruments are now yours. I love the, the picture of the woman that comes to him, the sinner who's great in Simon's house who most would say she was a harlot. And, and the Bible takes great care to, to emphasize this lady, all the things that she used for her trade of sin, now being used in terms of worship to Christ. Her tears, her eyes, her lips, she's kissing his feet, washing them with her hair, her hands, she's touching him. And, and all those things become instruments of righteousness. So the person who's been given over to sin, their whole body, used for things for the other side, Jesus says, that's all dead. Now I want your whole body back. And I want all that used for me. So as Paul used all those things, his zeal, his intellect, his incredible stamina for literally work against Jesus Christ and his church, he now presented all those things to Jesus Christ. And he took them. And he enlivened them. And he worked through them. And they were yielded then in obedience to the Lord. Sin works to control us through our bodies, through our lusts, through our desires. But we're called to present. The word does have an idea of a regiment standing before a general. But I think the idea is simply... We're, we're given to the Lord. Okay, what do you want me to do? And, you know, some of those things are universal for every Christian. Like, I could tell everybody here, thou shalt not steal, so don't steal. But a lot of those things are personal. It's, and I don't have to tell that to you because it's Christ in you. He's telling you. Tonight, he's telling you. He's like, I want you to go do this. I want you to share with this person. I want you to give this. I want you to think this. I want you to give more of yourself to me. I'll be back in children's ministry. When you're ready to come serve, come find me. Right? Like, he's going to speak to you in his own way. He's going to tell you. It's his life in you. And what I do is I just present myself to him. You tell me what you want me to do, Lord. I'm yours. I'm, I'm following you. I'm tied with you. I'm abiding in you. So I trust your life to work in me. And you'll Tell me to do what you want me to do. And my job is simply to respond to that. And that is where sanctification is going to be found. Most directly. 
I will say, certainly, there are things in the scripture that give us um, uh, encouragements to take things out of our lives, to weed, to cut out sin, and there are places for that. But the picture here is more in response to life, a surrendering to the life that you have that's real in Jesus Christ. And uh, somebody said, if we just added one virtue a year, we'd be saints in no time. And the reality is, I think sometimes we can spend a whole lot of time trying to get stuff out of our life when really the Lord's trying to get us to just give life, respond, add. Peter says, add to your faith, add this, add this, add this. There's some pretty incredible miracles where the response was, there's some poison in there. What we do is add something to it, not just take away from it. F.W. Borm was a pastor. He tells this story. Think about it often where this town, they built a whole kind of like nice man-made river right down the middle of it. And they wanted to have it all look nice during the town. And then the river ended up with this algae that they couldn't get rid of. They were trying to take it out. They were trying to get rid of it in all different types of ways. And there was some, I believe it was some old farmer guy there or something who said, plant willows by the bank. They were like, what? He's like, yeah, plant willows. So they planted the trees and something in the trees ate away the algae and it was gone. And his point was, a lot of times we're trying to pull stuff out, and really what we need to do is just plant a couple more willows, right? Really, the Lord's just saying, now do what I'm telling you to do. Live the life I'm telling you to live, and you won't have so many problems with your old man. Do the thing I'm telling you to do. Reckon that old man dead. Live to God. Present your members to God as being alive from the dead, your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Why? Here's the declaration. For sin shall not have dominion over you. For you are not under the law, but under grace. Sin shall not have dominion over you. God does not want his life dominated by sin. He died for sin. And he wants us to live with him. And we're going to do that eternally. He says, sin's not going to have power over you. It's not going to rule your life. And you and I are all going to have challenges to this at times. There's going to be places where we look at our lives and say, man, Lord, how does this work out? I'm in this battle. I just, I don't see how I'm going to win here. Just wait. We're not to chapter 7. Right? That comes. That's the whole point, right? It's natural. The whole flow is natural. But what he needs them to understand first is there, there is no common ground between the person who's going to presume upon God's grace and just say, I can go keep sinning because God is so gracious. He says, no. Don't you remember you were baptized? How can you, who died to sins in Jesus Christ and now receive life in him, not walk in newness of life? How, how can we, if we died with him and now we're planted and united with him, not walk in newness of life? How can I remain in bondage to my old man who is crucified and no longer has power and not instead reckon myself dead to that, but alive to God? I don't present my members back to my old man. I present my members to him, to live in him and to be sanctified in him. And to grow in those things. So whatever that looks like for you, what he did is a fact. 
And any believer who has the life of God in them should be able to look at their life and say, all right, Lord, I see what you're telling me here. I will reckon that old man dead. I'm not going to measure myself off of what I see in my own sin. I'm going to identify myself with you and what you've done for me. Because that's the most powerful thing. And I'm just going to obey. So whatever he's telling you to do, you do it. And if you're like, I'm not sure what he's telling me to do. Okay, then just pray for a keen ear. Keep the window clean for when the vision goes by, right? Just keep looking, and he'll tell you when the time comes. So let's stand. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your goodness. Lord, I pray for any of my brothers and sisters here tonight that feel like they are in bondage. I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would give them life in you. Pray that they could receive in faith that declaration that sin will not have dominion over them because of who you are and what your work is. And Lord, I just pray that you would allow us to faithfully present ourselves to you, Lord, day by day, moment by moment. Thank you, Lord, that we are not bound to our old man, but that you set us free in you. Let us grow in grace and in the knowledge of you, in the understanding of these things, and the reality of them. So thank you, Lord Jesus, for them. Thank you that you take the time to explain spiritual life to us. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that uh, where anybody here needs clarity in you, that you would give that to them as a good father. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.